So our text tonight, a new book of the Bible, the book of Matthew. We'll be reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. On the back of your sheets are all the verses for both the psalm and for the text tonight, if you'd like to follow along. Hear the word of God. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminibadab, and Amminibadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for our family and this time gathered tonight and this ability to worship and study your word. Lord, as we grow and, and study this gospel, we ask you to bless us, to open our hearts and our ears and our minds to your word. May we impress it upon our hearts that we carry it with us everywhere that we go. Lift us up in all that we do. This we pray in your mighty name. Amen. It really is good to be here. It's really good to be here outside minus the street racing but that's okay we can have street racing and the music next door is pretty pretty quiet but being outside in the spring and summer is one of my favorite times to spend with everybody here under god's canopy we're in our third book of the bible which is really exciting and we're almost about to celebrate a year which is even more exciting but two weeks ago if you remember we finished ecclesiastes and one of the things i said when we were concluding the book of ecclesiastes is how much i enjoy and love introductions and it's true i really do love introductions because introductions excite us they give us insight into what is about to be what is about to come and a lot of times they even include some foreshadowing a good introduction is always important whether it's a book or a sermon or a lecture or a term paper solid introductions set the stage for what we are about to experience and while this is a good solid tip that having a good introduction to your term paper or sermon or novel is, is important, think about how much more important it is when it applies to the Word of God. And it's important because we know that God's Word is true. 
and it matters. And so if there's an introduction in God's word, it must also be very important. We should be paying attention to every word. And what I think makes it even more exciting is that we are in this introduction about to be introduced to the most important person in all of human history. And I don't actually mean that lightly. I truly believe and mean that Jesus Christ is the most important person in all of history. And if you haven't encountered Jesus yet, the living God, then this could appear to you as a large claim. But I'm confident that as we take the time to grow and study in Matthew's gospel, as we read Jesus' actual words, as we contemplate the actual events that took place, and then as we continue to pray to God through the Spirit to work in our hearts and to grow us, that we will undoubtedly see that Jesus is king. We will see his majesty. We will understand the Son of God, who the living Christ is. And I like this because Matthew's introduction to his gospel is simple and yet fully complete in verse 1. He says, The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he sums it up in a very succinct way. He, he, he just tells us exactly what the whole thing is going to be about. And I want to start us off with looking at the word genealogy. What do you think of when we think of genealogy? It's okay, it's participation here. Family tree? Ancestry, right? Yeah, we, we usually think of a list of ancestors, which Matthew's actually going to do in, in verses 2 through 17, and we'll, we'll cover that nearer the end. But the Greek word that is used actually means more than that. It is so much deeper than just a list of family names. The Greek word is genesis. And genesis means the birth, the origin, the source, the existence, the life, the history, the lineage, the family line. Our genesis includes where we came from, but it is so much more than just where we came from. See, your genesis, my genesis, it's our origin, it's our story, it's our actual experience. And Jesus' begins in his birth here, in his lineage. It's his gospel as a whole. It's his life even now. And where else have you heard the term that sounds a little bit like Genesis? Would you believe that the Hebrew pronunciation of that same word is Genesis? And where have we heard of Genesis before? First book of the Bible, right at the very beginning? Genesis, the origin, the experience, the source of all existence, everything that is in creation. So what we are about to read is the Genesis, the Genesis of Jesus. It's, it's first going to be about his lineage, but then it's going to be about his experience and his existence and his history and his life. And we talked about this a little bit when we studied Hebrews, but it's worth a reminder. The Bible is not a history book, but it is a book that contains history. What I mean by that is not every single moment of every single bit of history is captured within Scripture. It's not a minute-by-minute -minute account. But the items that are captured are historically accurate. They are true. We have to remember how we view history now in 2022 is different than how history was recorded in the first century. The way people recorded history, what they found important to record in history, their ability to record history is different than what we can do now by taking photos of everything and having videos. We can actually build minute-by-minute -minute timelines for people's lives now that wasn't as easy to build in the first century. 
So it's important for us when we're approaching the text to understand how it was written and the manner of which it was written. And these, these things have been used by detractors of the Bible to use as claims against scriptural authority. And if you were here last week when Dr. Grudice was speaking about those claims, and if you have questions about that, I'll be happy to answer them. But, but it is important for us as we read this to look through the eyes of the original audience before we attempt to apply it to our lives today. That way we can capture it in its, its actual form, its actual intent, and then we can apply those words in the wisdom of Jesus to our lives here and now. So, we know what the book is about, the genesis, the genesis of the genealogy of Christ. But before we look at who Jesus is, we need to look at who wrote the book of Matthew. So we said a few minutes ago that the book is authoritative. It is part of what we refer to as biblical canon. So it's probably important for us to know who actually wrote the words that we're reading. And when we usually refer to Gospels, we refer to them as the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Matthew. But that naming didn't really come up until the second century. Nowhere in the beginning of our text does it say the Gospel of Matthew and then the words. It, it jumped right in with Matthew verse 1-1, right? The genealogy of. So the Gospel of Matthew was written by a Jew named Matthew. It's pretty amazing. Matthew was a Jewish tax collector. He was a direct disciple of Jesus. He was one of the twelve. You may see him in Mark and Luke's Gospel referred to as Levi. But he was an eyewitness. He was there when these events took place. He is recording witness accounts of what took place with Jesus and the disciples. And there's some disagreement over the overall time frame of when this was actually penned and, and when it was put to paper. But most scholars seem to agree that it was written between 64 and 70 A.D. And we think it was probably written in Antioch, in Syria, and it was written to the church in Antioch there. Because the very earliest person to quote Matthew was the bishop of Antioch. And Antioch was a Jewish and a Gentile place, which should actually explain why there's a lot of discussions in our gospel around the subject of legalism. We'll see that as we work through the book. Matthew was addressing specific questions to the specific church there, hoping to provide them clear answers. But what he's also going to show us is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. And I want us to think about that as we slowly work our way through this incredible gospel. So we've, we've looked at the, the fact that this book is about Jesus' life, origin, history, and existence. We've determined that it was Matthew, a direct Jewish disciple of Christ, who wrote and penned the gospel. Which then leads us into this important question. If I made a claim that Jesus is the most important person in history... Who is Jesus? Because it's probably important for us to figure that out at the very beginning if he is indeed the most important person in history. Verse 1, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We're still in the first verse. You guys thought I was lying when I said this was going to be three hours. But Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. How's it going? It's good to see you. I know. <laughs> yeah, it's either way. It's good to see you, brother. Thank you, here. I take a seat. Hi, everybody. <laughs> okay, go back and yeah, we'll start all over. We'll just rewind. So Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the very first thing that we should probably look at is his name, Jesus. And I think you would all agree with me that names are powerful. We, we spoke about the power of names and, and Jewish culture regarding names when we studied Hebrews. But think about it. Names give things life. And think about it from the places on where names are not used. 
prisoners when they're only referred to their prisoner numbers, uh, victims of the Holocaust or, or other great genocides when they are dehumanized and their name is stripped from them, even in military training. Some military training, they require you to refer to yourself in the third person and only as this recruit. The idea is to separate yourself from that defining part of who you are, your name. It's also why when we're excited to celebrate when people bring new life into the world, we don't just ask, is it a boy or is it a girl? We usually ask, what's the baby's name? We want to refer to the baby by the baby's name. And that's because names have meaning and power. It's why the name of Jesus carries so much power. You have probably in church sung a song or sung a hymn about the name of Jesus and the power that the name of Jesus carries. So it's important for us to understand where his name comes from. Jesus would have been named in Hebrew, Yeshua or, or Joshua. That's, that's literally what Jesus' name is. And that word literally means the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. We get the name Jesus from the Greek usage of that word. But what about Christ? Is Jesus' last name Christ? Would Jesus' driver's license show Jesus Christ on it? Everyone say no. No. What is Christ? Christ is actually a title. It's not his last name. In the word in Greek, Christos, it literally just means the anointed one. So Jesus is the Lord who saves and is the anointed one. And to be anointed just means to be set apart. Jesus was set apart when he was going to complete tasks for us, dying for our sins, set apart as fully man, fully God, coming to fulfill God's prophecies, to reconcile the world back to him. See, anointing by itself was nothing new in the ancient world. Kings and priests were regularly anointed. Prophets many times would be anointed. But Jesus was different. In his time, Christ came to signify in means, and still does today, the final king, the king messiah. The, the Jews had been waiting for a messiah, and many are now, tragically. But, but, they, but even they were short-sighted of what they even expected him to come to do. They knew to wait for the Christ, but they expected military and worldly victories. And said, Jesus comes with the greatest victory of all, conquering sin and death, crushing the devil's head, changing the world. And what's really amazing about Christ is even strong unbelievers are still willing to acknowledge that he existed. No credible scholars believe that he did not exist. So even in the non-Christian world, people still believe that Jesus Christ existed. Which then leads us right up into this place of his genealogy, those 15 verses that we listed with all the names. So Matthew starts with this declaration that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Why does he start there? Well, first, I would assume everybody here is familiar with the, vir the virgin birth, right? That Jesus' mother, Mary, was a virgin when she conceived Jesus. Her and Joseph, they did not know each other intimately. And we're going to dive into more of that next week because that part of Jesus' story will be at the beginning of the text that we talk about next week. But the virginal birth is critical to Jesus's divinity, but also so is his human lineage. And that's why we have verses two through 17. Not only are these sometimes more challenging verses for anybody to read aloud and like pastorally, the most terrifying of the verses to read aloud. That's amazing. She is fast. I love it. 
<laughs> but they're in here for a purpose. They're not just in here to skim over. People do this when they read numbers and we read lists of names. I'll just skim over to get to the part that's, that's a little bit more interesting or easy for me to read. But the verses are in there for a reason. The lineage is in there for a reason. It provides us an actual name of the people that came before Jesus, his family tree. And this is important, I think, to, to pause here for a moment. We are the only religious tradition that can back up what we claim, both within the Old Testament and the New Testament, by multiple eyewitness accounts. Nobody else can make that claim. And so these aren't just names for us just to skip over because we may not feel like they have a lot of purpose to us. They're there so we can actually look back with accountability on the claims that the author's making. Matthew is helping to show that Jesus is the one who fulfilled the prophecy. He is who he said that he was. Uh, he is who the prophets predicted, that he is truly the Messiah, because there had been many false messiahs, many people that had claimed to be the Messiah who were not the Messiah. And that's what I think is special about Matthew's gospel, that Matthew, as a religious Jew, would have known what we refer to as the Old Testament text. He would have known what the prophecies actually said. He would have been able to discern whether the things that Jesus was saying were being fulfilled. He knew that Christ was the fulfillment of God's promises. And he starts that at the very beginning of this by saying that Jesus is the son of David. He's, he's making a claim that Jesus is the heir to the kingly line of David. If we were to look at Isaiah 11.1, there shall come forth from a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear uh, fruit. So the prophet Isaiah is highlighting messianic prophecy that a branch that shall bear fruit shall come from the stump of Jesse, who was King David's father. All of the privileged earthly kings will eventually be chopped down, but that stump, while that stump is still living, will send forth a shoot that will bear fruit and in this case, that fruit is Jesus. And we see that if we look at verse 6 in our text tonight. And Jesse, the father of David the king. He's pointing this piece out in the lineage that Matthew is giving us. If we were to go to 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14, the first part of 14, we actually see the Lord speaking to King David, making promises. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne for his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." See, Matthew is really aware of the lineage of Jesus, so he wants to make sure that all of us are aware of Jesus' lineage as well. We're going to see that Jesus is referred to as son of David nine times throughout this gospel. Jesus is the long-promised heir to David, the king of kings, and it is through him that true restoration is possible because Jesus defeated the devil. He overcame sin and death. But he's not just called son of David in that first verse. He's also referred to as the son of Abraham. And I love Abraham. My Hebrew name when I was Jewish was Avraham, which is Abraham. And I loved him because he was a pagan. And then he came to experience the real in the living God. But not only did he experience him, but he had faith when he experienced him. God tells Abraham to go. And he goes. But he doesn't tell Abraham where he's going. He's like, hey, I need you to go. And Abraham says he will go. Abraham in his faith and his trust follow the word of God. Abraham has always been a rock for me in my personal faith. Genesis 12:1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. Not only does that level of faith inspire me, 
But then in the next two verses, God actually makes a promise, which ties into our gospel today. Genesis 12, 2 through 3. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, God promises Abraham that he will be a great nation, so that he will be a blessing. God actually uses Abraham to establish his holy people. He promised Abraham that in his offspring, the nations of the earth will be blessed. Chapter 22, verse 18. And your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And I think this is why Matthew starts off with Abraham in the genealogy in verse 2. Instead of Adam, like Luke does. If you look at Luke's genealogy in the beginning of his gospel, they start and they're a little bit different. See, Matthew is writing for a a predominantly Jewish audience who is going to know uh, about who these people were, and he's making a very specific point about the line of David and the line of Abraham. And that's what actually jumps us into those those 15 verses. He's talking about those 14 generations. It says in verse 17, So all the generations from Abraham to uh, David were 14, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14. Now, I'm not going to spend time going name by name through the lineage, though we could, but dinner will be really cold. But I do want to mention a few highlights. If you were to go back and look at all the kings that were mentioned here, Jesus' Davidic lineage you would see a startling fact. Now, while this is a royal line and is full of royal blood, it is not a sinless line. None of that should surprise us because we've seen the mess that the royal families are currently involved in now, and they are a royal line with royal blood and most certainly not sinless. But some of the royalty that's mentioned were great men, David, Hezekiah, Josiah. But about half of the kings that were mentioned were utterly wicked men. Ahaz, he worshiped pagan gods practiced human sacrifices. He even killed one of his own sons. Manasseh, if you were to read in 2 Kings, it says in there, he did more evil than the nations. He promoted idol worship and he murdered innocent people. But then what about the women? Why are just four women just scattered randomly in this lineage of of Christ? We see Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba are all mentioned. And we know what's special about those women? Three out of four of those women were either prostitutes or adulteresses. So why mention wicked kings and prostitutes? The first thing I would say is if you were to invent a religion, you would not nearly highlight as many of the wicked, sinful people as we continue to highlight in, in Scripture. You would definitely like kind of push all that aside and only bring the really righteous people up. <laughs> so I actually think that's an apologetic for the truthfulness of Scripture. But what it really shows us is that Israel and these royal kings were still suffering the consequences of sin. Sin that happened as a result of the fall that we've read about in Genesis 3 many times. No one, not even the royal line, the royal line that will bring us the Messiah is safe from sin. And sometimes that can seem odd to broadcast these kinds of things and, and make a show of it, especially in a culture now where we don't want to talk about any sin. We all want to present our best lives online. I haven't said it yet this week, but please cancel all your social media accounts. But people creating these fake personas of themselves online to represent what they want the world to see instead of actually who they really are. And the problem with it lies when we think about it from a spiritual space is when you don't believe that anything's actually wrong with you, you don't believe you need to be saved from anything. When you don't actually think there's any sin in you, then you don't need a savior. Hi, how are you? (laughs) She's adorable, I love it. 
But the reality is, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. Everybody in Jesus' lineage was a sinner in need of a Savior. And so, Jesus has a divine lineage and a human lineage, and his divine lineage is perfect. But his human lineage is like ours. It's messy. It's got pimples and all. He came from a line of broken sinners, and he came not to praise his forefathers, but he came to save them. He came not to praise us, but he came to save us. The reality, family, is that no matter how hard we try, we cannot save ourselves. We need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. He's the, ones, the one that unites the nations. He's the one who brings peace. He's the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the King of Kings. He's the true Messiah. He's born from the line of David. He fulfills the promises that were made to Abraham to bless the nations of all the world. That's why he commands us. What we're going to see at the very end of Matthew, it's called the Great Commission. He commands us to go out and make disciples of all nations. What he does is he brings us into a family. He brings us as adopted sons and daughters because of his great love and his incredible grace. We are no longer defined by any external marker. We're not Jews or Gentiles or slaves or freemen or black or white. We are all brother and sister. Sinners united together under the headship of the one who can actually save us. The one who fulfilled the prophecy of the Old Testament and the one who is making nations great. Jesus is the strength to the weak. He's the support for the downtrodden. He is love, light, and reason for all of our worldly joy. So I'd like to close tonight with a prayer that I found in one of the commentaries that I've been studying as we've been uh, preparing to, to work through this gospel with you. And I think, it'll, I think it'll wrap us up nicely as we close down the very first section of Matthew. So please pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for making me a child of Abraham. Thank you for including me in your family. Help me remember that your family is always open and help me welcome all people those who seem worthy and those who seem unworthy into it. For I know that I am not worthy, but I am beloved. Let me share that love with others. Amen.